Welcome to the next episode of Gifted Chat, a podcast sponsored by the Alabama Association for Gifted Children, or AAGC. The purpose of this podcast is to spark conversations about topics in gifted education. I am your host, Dr. Shirley Farrell, and am the current president of AAGC. We hope you will join us each month to listen to a conversation between myself and a leader in gifted education. We will discuss a topic or two that is near and dear to the heart of our guests. Then you can join the conversation at the Gifted Chat Facebook page. Welcome to our next episode of Gifted Chat. I am thrilled that Matt Makel has agreed to join us. Um, met him years ago at NAGC, our National Association for Gifted Children's Conference, and saw him recently and put the planted the seed about him being a part of this. Dr. Matt Makel is the Associate Research Scientist in the School of Education at John Hopkins University. That alone is very impressive. He is with us to talk about and maybe I should have started the gifted chat season one with this topic. Why do we need gifted education? So Matt, why do we need gifted education? Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. And uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because whether I'm at an academic conference meeting colleagues like yourself, or just meeting new people socially, I feel like this topic, this question of why does gifted education need to exist is the topic that comes up more than any other topic. It's more than who are gifted students, how do we find them, how can we help serve them, those far, far less frequently. It's why, why, why should we do that? And I think there's many reasons for this, um, including the fact that, you know, the, the field has made some mistakes historically, some of which continue today. And Sometimes our behaviors don't always align with our, our values. Um, and so that has led many people in education um, and outside education to kind of have that question and need the, need the question answered. And kind of the answer that I uh, give most often is because same age does not equal same learning needs. It's, it's really pretty simple. I try to put it that pretty straightforward. You know, students differ from each other. Not all nine-year-olds wear the same shoe size. Not all nine-year-olds read at the same level either. And so when it comes to shoe shopping, we don't expect that same age equals same shoe size. We measure the child's foot and provide a shoe intervention that matches their current need. And we even have a fun tool that uh, is fun non-gifted ed trivia. It's called a Brannock device uh, named after Charles Brannock from New York who patented it about a hundred years ago now. But we find what their shoe intervention needs are and then give them the matching intervention. And then a year later, if they're shoe shopping again, we don't assume that they've grown the same amount either. We measure their need again and try to provide a, a matched uh, shoe intervention for that. And my hope is that through uh, services like gifted education, our educational sophistication can match the sophistication of shoe shopping adventures. I love how you put that with uh, the measurement of the shoe. Uh, when I talk to teachers about differentiation, 
and they tell me they don't have the time or why do we have to differentiate for the kids. Um, I've used similar things with we ride bikes at different times without our training wheels. We, you know, lose teeth and get adult teeth at different times that we're all different. But I love the um, comparison to shoe shopping. I think with the tool and everything, that is fabulous. Well, thank you. It's not, it's not my, it's not a Matt Makel original. I heard it from David Lubinsky, who I believe credited Camilla with coming up with it. Uh, Camilla Benbow, the Dean of School of Ed at uh, Vanderbilt University. But I find when I try to make the parallel of thinking about how students differ from each other in gifted ed, that's not something that's special. We're trying to respond to something that exists. And we do that all the time with kids already. And so that I'm trying to make it rather than seem foreign, I'm trying to make it feel familiar and how we're not asking or trying to do something special that's different from every other thing that we do with kids, but rather it's the opposite. We're trying to do, be responsive in ways that we're responsive to children's needs in many, many other facets. But I love it. I, I, the, I mean, we all go and buy shoes, so it that's perfect. Now, you've mentioned that we get things wrong and we continue to get some things wrong with gifted education. Can you share what some of those things are that we, we need to work on and correct? Sure, I'm gonna just list a couple that are most relevant to some of my work uh, because I think, I know you want this, these to be 15 minute episodes. We could be here for many, many hours uh, mm -hmm. if we wanted to do a full laundry list uh, of things. And I'm, I'm gonna pick one uh, so one point that I'm going to touch on briefly is having equitable access to identification and appropriate services is at the forefront, I think, of almost every conversation I have about gifted education. And I think also underlies some of the why we need to justify the existence of the field uh, concerns. And there's a recent special issue of Gifted Child Quarterly that uh, my colleagues, uh, the editors, Michael Matthews and Jill Adelson organized that was uh, co-guest edited by Frank Worrell and Dante Dixon that was particularly focused on equity. Um, it was really nice that it was one target article that Scott Peters wrote. And then I believe there were 28 different commentaries from a variety of people from within the field, close to the field, outside the field, responding to the uh, topic and to the target article, and then Scott wrote a rejoinder on it. And I really think um, that covers a nice broad spectrum of, of equity issues. And I think that's something that the field has really started to have more conversation about. And although um, obviously more than just conversation is needed, action is needed too, but hopefully with some changing mindsets, actions are also following, which I think they are in many places. I but, think, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. If you want to keep on that, I was going to start listing more areas where I think the field could uh, improve its actions. Yeah, I was just going to share that, you know, I think we all gasped when we saw New York City do away with their gifted ed program. And I think a lot of us in the, in the field with boots on the ground in the schools were worried about how is that going to filter down to the, you know, the rest of the nation looking at what New York had done, but I saw recently that the mayor is gonna bring it back and they're gonna work on improving it. So I think that kind of made us feel a little better, but we're still concerned about that because that goes, why do we need it? And they got rid of it because 
they thought it would be more equitable that way, but getting rid of something doesn't make it equitable. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think New York and many, many other places have uh, ample room for improvement on how they identify and serve uh, students in their schools. But one of the, the changes similar to what you were talking about of getting rid of it and identifying and serving no one is inequitable. Uh, one of the things that I think the field could improve on is actually doing the opposite of that is, I think we could and should be identifying a lot more students for services. Uh, there's uh, several projects that I've been a part of where we've been looking at the variability in student learning needs. So how variable are there, similar to the shoe size? Is it just that you know some kids are size five and some kids are size four and some kids are size six? No, there's huge amounts of variability. Uh, and we looked at, um, and I actually think Joni in what I believe might be her last episode, previous episode, when she was talking, mentioned this paper uh, on should how many fifth grade students should take a gap year. We looked at three with Caramba Hernandez, Scott Peters, Michael Matthews, Jonathan Plucker, and I looked at three state administrative data sets, Wisconsin, California, and Texas. So three pretty diverse different states. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to know how many students scored at the proficient level, one grade level above where they were placed. So how many fourth graders scored at the proficient level or higher on the fifth grade level? Just to get a sense of how many kids are there. And we were surprised by how many that was. Uh, so starting at the third grade level in the various states, Texas was the lowest in only 20% only of Texas third graders scored proficient at the fourth grade level. Whereas in Wisconsin, it was 34% of third graders did so. That's a one out of three Wisconsin third graders were scoring one year above grade level in English language arts. In math, the numbers were a little lower. It ranged for third grade from 16 to 26%. So that's, you know, one out of six to one out of four students were one year above grade level. That's a lot. And what we were really surprised by, then we also looked at third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, going up to seventh grade. And actually those numbers generally increased as students got older. Whereas in Wisconsin, 49% of sixth graders were scoring proficient one year above grade level in English language arts. That's wow. almost half of the Wisconsin students. And so when you think about like who could benefit from a special service, it's not this, you know, 3% or 5% of kids that I find that the field is often debating about. It could be many, many more uh, students whose learning needs might not be met by what's being offered in the regular classroom. It almost makes you think that maybe the curriculum we're doing is not challenging enough for kids, just regular gen ed classroom that we need to relook at it and determine that part of it as well, but and providing the enrichment and the challenging activities for all kids. You know, we always say what we do in gifted classes should be for all kids, and that is so true. Um, how we do it and the strategies, strategies we use are very appropriate for all kids. I mean, let's face it, we do a lot of hands-on um, problem solving, real world activities. And that is very motivating for most kids. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. When, um, I think one of the hardest conversations I was ever in 
was only a couple years out of grad school. I was part of a group that included some very well-established, very successful faculty from outside the field uh, who were very smart and I respected their work and, and them quite a bit. And one of them said that they believed that many schools intentionally saved the good education for gifted programs and purposely gave inferior curricula to the general ed. And like, I, I can't deny that that, that, you know, that that ever happens, but if that is happening, that is wrong. That is the field failing. And so when you'd said that, you know, what happens in gifted ed should be, you know, often happen in general ed classrooms. For me, the two, the two points that I often differ of when and how should gifted ed look different than, than general ed is I think about timing and pace. Mm -hmm. so, so the timing being when does a student get exposed to this level of, of curricula and pace, how quickly do they go through it? Um, but those are the two big pieces that I think of that could or should look different in, in, in gifted ed compared to general ed. It should never be where we save the good or the fun things for gifted ed and give something inferior to the, to the general ed uh, environment. Yes, and when you said fun things, you know, a lot of times the gifted classroom is either, you know, oh, they're only playing games, it's just fun time, there's no relevance to it, or um, I, I know here in Alabama, the nifty gifty, where the kids would, you know, do these crafts and do these things, and, and that's not what is being done, but that's been the perception from uh, gen ed teachers and even administrators. And that has been very frustrating, um, trying to explain what it is we really do. And it, um, even with when I was at the State Department going around, we use concept-based curriculum units. And they're supposed to be a culminating performance task. And what you're really teaching are essential understandings. And that culminating performance task provides a current real world simulation. Sometimes it can be real. They might present to a historical society or a historical museum or you know, some real location um, for either a new exhibit, but they're taking what they've learned and those essential understandings one or all three of them and applying them in this new scenario where the kids are either working individually or in teams. And you would have, so it's very high level, very real world. And then you would have some teachers, gifted teachers say, yeah, my kids made masks today. We had studied Africa and we made masks and they explained how the mask represents themselves. And I'm like, that's a great activity. That's a great way to help understand the symbolism, maybe patterns but that is not a culminating performance task. And th that's been very hard changing the mindset, even of some of the veteran gifted teachers, because it's easy to fall into that routine of doing what you've always done. And in gifted, you're constantly trying to run ahead of the kids, um, learning something new. You have to love learning to be able to work with gifted kids. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you, you raise a specific instance of an issue that the field really wrestles with is what is our goal? You know, so if, if mm -hmm. recognizing 
that same age doesn't equal same learning needs is why the field needs to exist. What are we trying to accomplish is a hopefully related question that we also answer. And so is it that we're trying to provide enrichment opportunities so that students can go deeper in their areas or, or is it, if it's an and or an or, it doesn't have to be, an, it doesn't have to be an either or, or is the field trying to respond to student learning needs and provide them with the same standard course of instruction that is being provided to every student, but at a pace and timing that aligns with what the student demonstrates a readiness for. And those two goals of the let students go deeper, provide more enrichment, and then match the instructional environment with their student readiness, those two goals aren't always equated in what's being provided. Um, and so those, those, those help meet two very different goals for the fields. And I think districts and states, depending on what the policy environment is, have to think about what their goal, what success looks like and how they can best achieve that. Absolutely. Okay, I think I've taken us down a rabbit hole. And what you had a few other um, items to share with us about what we need to do better in gifted, what we've done wrong. Oh, sure. Well, I think I, I'll, maybe I'll try to frame it a little more positively than just focusing on what we've done wrong. I'll try to think like, so why, why does gifted education matter? And what can we do? What should we be working on? And then hopefully if we are aligning our actions with our values, we're doing some of these things well and effectively. And so the first thing that kind of comes to mind of like why all this matters is I wanna give it, I wanna first preface by saying that I come from a family of educators. Um, I've never been a K through 12 uh, classroom teacher, but my mom was, all of my aunts were, I have an uncle, my grandmother, most of my cousins, all work or worked before they retired in education. So I have deep respect for teachers and educators. So I hope it's not taken the wrong way. When I say that, I'm not sure that it's reasonable to expect that all teachers are able to effectively handle the large variability in their classrooms when we give them a group of same age students and don't do any other grouping. Now, that's not a criticism of teachers. Mm -mm. It's a question about whether we can reasonably expect the system to succeed as it's set up. And I worry that it's not a reasonable expectation that every teacher can handle four and five and six grade levels of variability in their classrooms without help. They need help. And I think gifted education is one form that we can provide help to those classroom teachers. And I don't know that the field of gifted ed or the field of education more broadly has always framed it that way. Um, and I think we could do better on that front. And I think if classroom teachers heard you make that statement, they would wholeheartedly agree with you and say, yes, we need that support. I think that's one of the reasons why the research on cluster grouping came out. Here's a way to decrease the number of those um, different grade levels within a classroom. Down some, it's still gonna be a great variety, but you, you can get them closer together and be able to 
possibly do a better job of differentiation and having support teachers, whether it's a gifted teacher, an inclusion teacher, the uh, curriculum coaches to help with things. But, but that's still not the perfect fix. Yeah, exactly. And I think Marsha Gentry's work on cluster grouping uh, has been really persuasive to me. Um, and I had the great fortune to work on a paper with some colleagues, uh, Seying Steenberg and Hu and Paula Oshesky Kabilius from Northwestern a couple of years ago on a second order meta-analysis on acceleration and ability grouping. So mm -hmm. to explain to folks who aren't in, don't live in my world, there's primary research studies where a group of researchers go out and collect data and you know, write up a paper. That's a primary research study. And sometimes to synthesize you know, what do all these different studies show? What have they found? Researchers will do what's called a meta-analysis. And so then you'll look at, okay, let's look at cluster grouping or academic acceleration. Let's meta-analyze all of the primary studies on this and find out what, we, what, what they in general say. What Seying and Paula and I did was a second order meta-analysis because in ability grouping and acceleration, there are multiple meta-analyses that have been published. So we did a meta-analysis of the meta-analyses. Wow. And so that's a uh, hundred years of studies on ability grouping and academic acceleration. And what we found in this hundred year uh, synthesis was that academic ability grouping and, and acceleration, I think have a really strong research basis for being effective services to help high achieving students. But then when we look at reports in things like the state of the states that NAGC publishes, where they go around and ask states what services are being provided, academic acceleration and ability grouping are not the most commonly offered services. And so I feel like there's sometimes there's this mismatch between what practices have research evidence and what practices end up getting used. Now, this isn't um, a diss on differentiation. I think differentiation is absolutely necessary in any classroom, gifted or not, because there's huge variability in interests and achievement readiness and all those things. But I don't know, even though it's necessary, I don't know that it's sufficient to meet all the varying student needs. I think that's where we need a range of services that include things like grouping and acceleration in order to, in order to be effective. And I think the pre-service um, education programs need to include, and, and they I know that they do diverse learners and that, you know, but it's mostly on the IDEA side and maybe they touch on gifted, maybe they don't. And then when they get into the classrooms, um, I know like with the national accreditation, they want that gifted part included in, but unless they have someone who does gifted programming in the colleges, most of the students aren't getting any differentiation uh, strategies, which technically are the same as the other strategies, the content and the pacing that makes it different. But um, it, it, it just kind of surprises me when I've done some professional development and the teachers get that aha moment of, oh my gosh, I use the same strategy for these other students. I can do it with gifted and change the content. It's like absolutely challenge them. Don't make them do more. They're not computers, they're, they're children. 
Yes, they're, they're children. I think that's another thing that we don't always uh, do a good job of remembering is that they're still nine-year-olds. Mm -hmm. How many facets of life do we want nine-year-olds to just kind of be on their own and do their own thing without support? Not very many. No. I would imagine. No. They, can, they can benefit from some adult guidance and scaffolding and structure. So if you don't mind, I'm going to share a story of what happened with one young man. This was actually a seventh grader. It was a self-contained, very rural school. So they didn't change classes. They were with the teacher all day. And this young man, um, he would get through with his work and he would ask the teacher, well, what else? And the teacher said, I don't have time. I've got to go work with these other kids. He became a behavior problem. So she sat him next to her desk. And again, not challenging, not differentiating. And um, one day she calls the office and says, uh, this kid needs to be kicked out of school. He, he was disappointed in himself in that it took two weeks to take all of her pens and pencils from her desk, tie them together and lodge them into the drawers where she couldn't open her drawers. He was disappointed, took two weeks to get that project done. Um, and I was so <laughs> proud the special ed coordinator who was also over gifted thought, hmm, for a child to figure this out and to do this problem solving, they actually ended up doing great acceleration. He ended up in eighth grade then. So he would get challenged. I was so proud of that coordinator. Yeah, that's a great story because that, that shows that that student had learned that school is not a place to go to be engaged or to be challenged. That's a, that's a place, school was a place for him to go be bored. And I think that's the last thing we want to teach students is school is the place to go be bored at. And I think that's another goal, I think, of mine, at least for the field is, um, like Del Sigley had talked about, have the right to learn, students have the right to learn something new every day. Uh, Julian Stanley, who um, founded CTY in the study of mathematical precocious youth, former faculty member at Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. you know, he put it, uh, we should teach students only what they don't already know. I love that. That should be the motto of schools. Yeah, exactly. And, and I like how, I like how you said it's a model, a motto of schools. That's not a goal for gifted education. Mm. That's a goal for education. But to achieve that goal through education, we need things like gifted education to make sure that we're meeting the varying learning needs of students. Yes, and that's that makes me think of one of my favorites, Sir Ken Robinson when he said, we put kids into school by their manufacturing date, their birth date, their ages. And we don't look at what their abilities are. We're just grouping them together because there's the same age and that we should have a revolution in education and figure out a better way to meet their needs. Um, and that, that goes back to the acceleration where administrators seem to be afraid of it and yet it is free and easy to be able to implement. It does take some time and effort to, you know, make sure that it is a grade or is it subject acceleration, but it, it's, it's an easy way to meet the needs of the gifted kids. And I don't understand why they're so afraid of it. Yeah, it's a relatively light touch for teachers too, because mm -hmm. they don't have to adapt much of what they're doing. They can keep, keep 
teaching the content that they were planning on, on teaching anyway. Um, but I know one sense of why uh, administrators and educators have a concern that commonly comes up in conversation is concerns about student social emotional needs for acceleration. Uh, but then my colleague saying Steenberg and who actually wrote her dissertation on this, again, not a primary study, but she did a meta-analysis of all these studies of acceleration saying in general, what does the research say about the effects of acceleration on student social emotional needs? And in general, the, the research found that it was a net neutral on social emotional needs, or in some cases, it might be a positive. Now that's not a hundred percent guarantee across the board, but we're talking about what's typical versus what's the exception to the rule. And what's typical was that acceleration did not harm student social emotional needs, but could, could have actually helped it. And I actually wanna push that a little further. That's just of what way we're seeing acceleration as it's done. And the, the latest numbers that I've seen from, I wanna say it's the adults, it's, it's from a national data set looking at grade acceleration, how many grade skippers we have. And this is from, this is a little old now, but it was about one in 400 students skips a grade in the US. So I, to me, in, that my, in my mind, that's pretty rare. One out of 400, 0.25%. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're skipping a grade, you are pretty rare. You're, you're more than likely the only student in your school. But think back to the, to the data that I talked about earlier on the whole state of Wisconsin, California, and Texas. And you know, 49% of, of Wisconsin sixth graders were scoring proficient one year above grade level in English language arts. And 36% of them, or more than one out of three, were scoring one year above grade level in math. So imagine if instead of one out of 400 students who are skipping a grade, what if there were three or four students in every classroom who is skipping a grade? So then they're not the only student who's being accelerated, but they have a mini cohort of students and it's normalized and it doesn't feel so atypical. My hunch, again, I don't have data on this, but my hunch would be there would still be concerns about social emotional needs, but having peers and cohorts would actually serve as a, a nice network for their students to feel more comfortable and to have whatever negative concern you know concerns there are there'd be even less and if it was if it was more typical and they had other other students but it would also be up to us as adults to normalize it if we make it seem scary and make it seem hard then we can manufacture and create negative consequences but hopefully we can also avoid that and make it so that it it doesn't disrupt the students who are accelerated or the other students in the, in the class. Oh, absolutely. And I would like to think that if a child's being accelerated, there would be some supports for that child in the beginning to get adjusted to the new classroom, new classmates, new schedules, um, not just the routines of things, but also making sure that they're adjusting socially and emotionally. And I know when we, I always talk to people when I find out they've grade accelerated, I always ask them, would you do it again knowing what you know now? And um, I, I would say 99% have told me yes. Uh, the one who said no, it was more of um, 
playing ball and different things like that, more of the outside the school kind of things. Since they were accelerated, they ended up getting put into different groupings outside of school for community ball and all that. Although I would have thought they would be age-based as well. Um, but they all said they would do it again. And it, it, it and there's even some that um, one of our gifted specialists in the state ended up dropping out of high school early didn't even graduate, but had been accepted into this early program at one of the universities and ended up just, you know, skipping her senior year and going straight to college. Wow. Well, that's great. And, and that's what I think I like that you talked about. It was an option. They chose to do that because I think I don't think anyone's talking about forced or mandatory options. And that's where I think the, the example for athletes, it, there's more to life than academics. And they may, you know, sports may be an important part of their life. And so they want to have that be a part of their decision of how they're spending their time and how they're going through going through school. I think that's great to give them that option. Although sports is another example that I like to bring up where we're very comfortable to accelerate. There's often ninth graders who play on the varsity team because they're showing readiness for it. And very infrequently our parents worried about their social emotional needs and fitting in they're actually sometimes the strongest drivers and supporters for it and so again when i talk about things like acceleration i'm not proposing that gifted ed or the field do something different or unique than what we do in any other instance i'm saying well let's look at how we pick teams for our for our school sports teams how do we cast lead in the school musical who gets first chair in the school band? It's based on their performance and their readiness, not necessarily just based on, on their age. We use a lot of sports analogies, um, I guess like really across the nation now, but you know, down in the South, it's always been known, you know, the SEC football, the, the sports. And of course, we always joke about when you walk into a school, what's the first thing you see? The sports trophy. So that's what, you know, seems to be the most valued. So I always talk about, and these are not mine, these come from my former colleague, Dr. Nina Pearson. Um, we talk about gifted kids don't always look gifted in the classroom. Think about that gold medal Olympic runner who is now forced to run around the track on painted footprints of an average runner, would they look like a gold medalist? They would probably trip and fall as they're trying to get around. So no one would think of them that way. Or the one I love the most is, we would never ask the star pitcher of the baseball team to sit on the bench until everybody could pitch like he can. So sometimes you have to say it a couple of times for it to really hit home about what we're doing with the kids who need to go ahead and excel and not have to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and I think in my experience, at least, when we have a conversation of this length, though I know you're a very kind and, and generous audience, but uh, when I have a conversation of this length, usually I feel like I make some progress, but it's getting in the room and having the conversation that is often the tougher uh, fight to be able to get get people's attention because I don't think you know people don't say oh I don't care about growth I don't care about achievement I, I don't hear that really but it's this kind of overcoming some misconceptions about maybe some outdated thinking or to overcome some problems that have happened in the past um, that I think are important for the field because you know student growth and achievement and success are not automatic we need to help 
provide them with effective and aligned services that are going to help them grow. Um, my colleague Sneha Shah Coltrane, the Director of Advanced Learning and Gifted Ed here in North Carolina, has a great phrase where she talks about all day, every day, that we need to be thinking about how we're helping gifted students all day, every day, not just once a week for two hours or not just at the end of the semester at the academic year, but how can we help them all day, every day? And I, I love that. And I love how often and she says it to make sure that it's something that's always at the at the forefront of our minds. Oh, absolutely. And and I know we've probably gone over our time. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and actually loved Sneha's comment there at the end. Do you have any parting words for us in addition to Sneha's? Oh, well, thanks for having me. And I just didn't, I like to reiterate because like you just said, sometimes it's useful to repeat things more than, you know, a couple of times is that I think, you know, why do we need gifted education? I think it's because students differ in their learning needs and their growth and learning aren't guaranteed. We have to respond to their learning needs and match their educational environment with their educational needs so that we teach them only what they don't already know. And hopefully we do that all day, every day. Oh, I mean, what a perfect, succinct way to put it. And I'm, I'm hoping everyone will grab it and start using it when, when they're in their schools, talking to their principals or coordinators and showing why gifted ed is needed for our gifted students. Well, I hope they do that too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can learn more about us at alabamagifted.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at alabamagifted. See you next month.